0: Amen. Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning in verse 17 and extending to the very end of the book, verse 19. Let's give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail. And the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold. And there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, and he makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The title for our message today is Walking the Heights in the Strong Joy of the Lord. The title is taken from the very final words of Habakkuk chapter 3, those words that Habakkuk says about his own sure-footedness, his own vitality, his own liveliness in God, He takes the metaphor of a deer being placed upon a craggy ridge of a mountain and it is there that he treads and sees a vista and a horizon and is able to walk the life that God has given to him in the providence that the Lord has bestowed upon him. He's able to do it with something of the frolicking of a deer on a high vista of a mountain We want to learn what it means to walk the heights in the strong joy of the Lord today. In the midst of of that picture, all kinds of difficulties are taking place. All kinds of of tragedy is mentioned here in the midst of this passage. And and it it reminds us to the fact that God, God is the one who must set us upon the heights. He is the one that must give us the hinds feet of the deer. The one who has the strength to walk in a fashion that is sure, and certain, and strong, and yet with joy. We can't conjure that. We, we can, through human mechanisms, inspire that. We need the Spirit of the Lord to grant it. And so as we come before this word asking the Lord to put us upon the heights to give us his strong joy, let's do so humbly. Let's do so knowing that in our futures, maybe even right now in our present, there are all kinds of circumstances that are pushing you into despair, into discouragement. Your life has not panned out the way that you wished it would, and if it has panned out the way that you wished it would, just give it time. It won't. Things will happen to you. That are way outside of your control. This was not the life that Habakkuk undoubtedly dreamed as a young boy. To be walking through the suffering of the loss of the land of Israel. And to see the forecast of a devastating enemy Babylon coming in and ravaging the land of promise. That's not what Habakkuk thought his ministry was going to look like. But it was the ministry that the Lord gave him. And in the midst of that ministry the Lord set him upon the heights. And he gave him the strong joy of the Lord. That's what we're seeking today. So come before this passage with the desire to know what that means. Come asking the Lord to give you the capacity of soul. To receive the strength and the joy that's latent in this passage. That's what he wants to give birth to. I believe in the hearts of his people today. So we're talking about mountains. Mountains are... Significant in the Bible. Whether it's Noah's Ark that came to rest on Mount Ararat after the floodwaters receded. And on the top of that mountain, Noah sacrificing to the Lord. Receiving again the promises that were given previously to Adam. And then the seal of his grace through the rainbow that he would not destroy the earth again by the means of A flood, it happened on the top of the mountain. Abraham in Genesis 22 ascended Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son Isaac at God's command. And the moment before that knife would plunge into Isaac, an angel of the Lord appears and and, in a voice halts the movement of Abraham. And the Lord provides a ram that is stuck in a a thicket that winds up being the sacrifice instead of his son Isaac. As we've already studied in Habakkuk, we've seen that Habakkuk is regularly referencing Moses' ascent on Mount Sinai where he pictures the glory of God as God hides him in the cleft of the rock and he receives from the Lord the commandments of God for the nation of Israel. Similarly, Elijah in 1 Kings 18 will arise to the top of Mount Carmel. There he will experience the glory of the Lord. In a still small voice, alongside thunderings and winds and movements of the Lord, it would be there where the Lord revealed his glory. Not surprisingly, great Christian theologians, writers throughout history have taken this theme of the mountain and the ascending of a mountain as a metaphor for the Christian life. St. Augustine, in his Confessions in the 3rd century, speaks of the Christian life as one step after another ascending the mountain of God. St. Bonaventure, in his writings, explores the discipline of meditation in the Scripture, reflecting upon the love of Christ and the glory of the cross. It is in so doing, he says, that we ascend, into the maturity of the Christian life. St. John of the Cross describes Christian spirituality as a progressive ascent up a mountain wherein we find ourselves closer and closer in communion with the Lord. Calvin, in his own writings on the Christian life, that wonderful little golden booklet of the Christian life, which we'll actually be talking about on one of our Wednesday nights during the Lenten season, describes in his collection of writings on the Christian life that our ascending, the mountain of God, is our walking in union with God. Even Dante, in the Divine Comedy, speaks of Mount Purgatory, the mountain that we must overcome, the hurdles that we must jump in order to get closer to God, wherein in the journey Dante himself begins to experience what he later refers to as complete union, which is what the heart of the Christian longs for. Now, climbing a mountain is revealing because it's hard. And the Christian life is at times hard. It takes effort and it takes work. And in the climb, things are revealed. Some of you may have read... Into Thin Air, a book by John Krakauer, where he talks about the ascent of a band of climbers reaching and seeking to reach the top of Mount Everest. Some of you may have seen it even in the movie Everest, which was recently released. In the midst of that journey, we see people's character revealed. We see them come through dangers and struggles. We see their heart on their sleeve as they make their ascent. The further they go in the Christian life, the thinner in one sense the air gets. The challenges increase, but the view is unbelievable. Unbelievable. It compels the mountain climber to suffer through the risks of loose rocks and small trails and crags and ropes that could give way in order to get to a view of experiencing the heights and the joy of looking out and from a vantage point that almost no one else reaches. Just to see. The realization is as you ascend a mountain, physically speaking, there is a descent that happens in your own heart. The things that are hidden underneath begin to come out. As you face trial and challenge, and difficulty, As you ascend, undoubtedly you'll have to go into the depths of your heart. And what you will find there is often something you wished weren't there. But if you are willing to go down and to deal with the descent of the darkness that is present in the heart through the ascent in walking with the Lord, what actually happens is you ascend all the higher. But one has to come with the reckoning to acknowledge honestly what's there. In the passage before us, we're gonna look at it in just two ways. We're gonna look at the descent. The descent of this passage is the suffering that arises from the sin of the people of Israel. And then we're gonna look at the ascent the ascent into the strong joy. Of God. They happen concurrently. They happen at the same time. The descending into the reality of suffering creates the ascension into the union and the heart of God. Just as one who climbs a mountain has to go deep into the recesses of their heart, into what is revealed. Well, how does Habakkuk show us this? I want you to look first with me into the descent of the suffering that arises from sin in verse 17 of the text. There are six conditional clauses that are given to us in verse 17. There is a severity, a, we might call a descending severity, to each of the lines of these six conditional clauses. Let me show you this. He starts out right there in the first line talking about figs. Figs were a delicacy for the people of Israel, a sweet fruit that were often enjoyed almost in the way that we would enjoy dessert. To lose figs was to lose something sweet. They're not going to blossom. Blossoms came before the fruit, so there's not even a provision today or tomorrow that the sweetness of the figs will be provided for the people of Israel. This will be a hardship, but something that they could easily survive. The fruit that comes on the vine, the grapes. It's for the making of wine. A drink of celebration. A drink of ceremony. A drink that's a sign of pleasure and a drink that's a sign of remembrance. The people of Israel are going to not have grapes on the vines. Their ability to sip on the sweetness of what the Lord has made. And to remember even in their feasts, which almost always included wine, what it is that he has done redemptively, will be missing. A privation, no doubt, but one that they can survive. Third, olives. Olives were used in the daily cooking of meals. Uh, they were used in the lighting of, of lamps. Uh, they were more towards the core sustenance of what the people of God actually needed on a day-in and day-out basis. No olives. Grain. Grain the most fundamental part of a Middle Eastern diet. Without grain, a vast majority of the then Israelites in the Middle Eastern culture would have starved to death. Sheep and cattle, representing the wealth of the nation. Sheep primarily with regards to clothing and to sacrifice, the wool and the blood. Cattle probably the wealthiest thing that anyone would own. In terms of physical resource, it was cattle who prepared the soil. It was cattle who did the heavy lifting. It was cattle that was the lead trading resource for the people of Israel. You see what Habakkuk is doing. Starting out with the sweet delicacies. Figs and grapes. Well, we're going to not have a good harvest of those this year. The palate won't be tantalized in quite the way we wished. But when we start talking about olives and grains, we're getting to the very core of the sustenance of what it means to survive. And when we start talking about sheep and cattle, we're talking about clothing with regards to the elements. And we're talking about the greatest resource of wealth that was known to the people of Israel both for trade and for work. What he's describing here is no mere drought, no mere famine. He's describing an economic and social meltdown. He's describing a Great Depression. He's describing a crash in Wall Street that leaves us with little more than peanuts. He's giving us a picture of life coming apart at the seams. Where the things that we take for granted will be there are no more. Deeper than this, Habakkuk is also showing us that a reversal is taking place. He is speaking, after all, about what land? The land of Canaan. This is the land where grapes are the size of watermelons. This is the land flowing with milk and honey. This is a place of lush greenery and fertile soil. This is a place that has known to always bring forth great harvest based upon the blessing of God. And this sliver of promised land that has been given to the people of Israel. But how is he describing it in verse 17? A cursed land. It's become a howling wasteland. It's a place where nothing will grow and no one can live. Which gives us a clue. In fact that language cursed is exactly the right language. And I'll tell you why. He's not speaking economically. He's not speaking socially. He's speaking spiritually. He's saying that this catastrophe. This tragedy. This meltdown. Is not a matter of mere movements of men and nations, this is a matter that is the fruit of the sin of the people of Israel. How do I know that? Well, by reading my Bible, of course. We could turn to Amos. We could turn to Obadiah. But why don't we turn to Haggai? Because I know it's sitting on the top of your head and your heart right now. In Haggai chapter 1... We see a prophet who has challenged and called the people of God to rebuild the temple of God. The whole book is surrounding the rebuilding of the temple of God after the exile that's being forecasted here by Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 1, he begins to use similar language that we see Habakkuk using, describing the land of Canaan here in verse 17. I want you to see Haggai 1 verse 6. He says this, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in bags with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills, bring in the wood, build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it became it came too little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Why does your clothes not keep you warm? Why does your food not ultimately fill you? Why does your drink not ultimately satisfy you? Here's what he says. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens, notice, above you have withheld their due, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain, notice, on the new wine and oil and on what the ground brings forth and on man and beast, And on all their labors. Now, Haggai is saying the drought that is taking place in the land of Israel at this particular moment is not merely a matter of an El Nino weather pattern. It is from the very hand of God as a disciplinary measure. And the suffering that's coming forth is a consequence of their sin. Habakkuk is saying the same thing. Habakkuk is saying the same thing. How do I know that? Well, I go a little further back in my Bible. Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26, Moses told us many, many moons ago that if you decide not to keep my commandments, cursing will follow. And if you keep my commandments, blessing will follow. He makes, makes it very clear in no uncertain terms. Leviticus 26.3, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for the sowing. Notice, you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely, and I will give peace in the land. You shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword. Here is a picture of blessing, a picture of abundance, a picture of the promised land under the benevolence of God's grace. If you keep my commandments, blessing ensues. But look at what he says in verse 14. But if you will not listen to me, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do them, but break my covenant, then I will do this. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease, fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. And you shall notice, sow your seed in vain, and your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you. Now, what's happening in Habakkuk? But the raising up of a people called the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, a wicked nation who hates Israel. Why is God raising this nation up? He's already told us in chapter 1. I'm raising them up as a disciplinary measure for you, the people of God, because you've forsaken me. And I told you I would do that back in Leviticus 26. That you will scatter your enemies If you follow my commandments, just like in the days of Joshua. But if you disobey my commandments and you walk not according to my statutes, you will be scattered by those who are your enemies and they will rule over you. You see, when Habakkuk is actually walking through this economic and social meltdown, he's not focusing upon those matters so much as he's threading a spiritual theme that the consequences of our sin, one way, shape, or form, come home to roost. They do. Beware, your sin will find you out. Beware, your sin will find you out. The recognition here is a descending of the people of Israel into sin has created a descending of the people of Israel into a suffering. Now, not all suffering is a product of sin. But if you look back over the course of your life, hasn't much of your suffering been a product of your sin? It must always be tested. We must ask the Lord to mine our heart and to reveal the source by which the challenges and the trials of our lives come. Sometimes suffering comes because we've been faithful. And we're told in the New Testament that God praises that and he rejoices in that for it's the suffering of Christ. But he says, beware lest any of you suffer because of sin, which is the nature of the people of Israel here. So as this descent into the suffering happens, he's relaying to us the fact that it happens because of the consequences of our sin. And it could be that maybe you in this room are already beginning to reap Some of the long, unrepentant sins that are in the course of your life. The ones that you've kept hidden from the Lord and from others. And you think it's not hurting anyone. It's not harming anyone. It's not going to make any difference. Habakkuk chapter 3 comes to you and says, the Bible says otherwise. The Lord won't be mocked. He won't be trifled with. He is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He can in no way not take care of and to mete out the reality of unrighteousness and iniquity in our lives. One way or another. There is a sense of sobriety that's here. A recognition of that. Now, before we jump to talking about the ascent... It's important to realize that when we run up against a truth like this and we realize, as he's saying here, though he puts it in conditional clauses, though the fig tree might not blossom, he doesn't mean to say, I'm not sure this will happen. He means to say, though this is going to happen, it's a sense of certainty to it. I want you to see that he doesn't respond as we often do to tragedy. He doesn't respond as we often do to tragedy. In fact, I want to briefly walk through with you three ways that we often respond to tragedy that actually exacerbates the pain and we might say deepens the descent into the darkness. Three ways. The first is false confidence. The first is false confidence. How many times is there a trial that comes our way or we see a challenge that's coming our way and we say to ourselves, I can beat it. I can overcome it. It might be a challenge that's socially or relationally or vocationally, but it might actually be a challenge of sin where you look in your life and you think, I can, I can lick this if I just put enough energy into it. And we play in a strength of what is false confidence and we actually create a vulnerability because it's a foolish heart that does that. It's a pride and a bravado, a hubris that thinks in our own might we can overcome the challenges that are coming our way. Number two, escapism. When suffering comes or challenges come, we just, I don't wanna think about it. I don't wanna think about it. I wanna put it out of my mind. I wanna avoid it at all costs. This is the source of addictions, the source of distractions. To run from the hollowness that may be there or to run from the fears that might be there. We bury our heads in the sand and we seek to escape. What actually happens here through avoidance is our hearts created fragile. And in the moment of sudden tragedy, it breaks because it's not prepared. Thirdly, resignation. Resignation. Many of us do this in the stiff upper lip kind of way. Well, you know what will be, will be. We can't, we can't change it. A kind of fatalism that says, you know, if God's going to bring the Babylonians in, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm just going to resign to it. But the way that we speak about it is actually a calloused, embitteredness. We act like it's a place of strength, but in reality, it's actually a wounded place that's decided to harden itself, actually against. God, and sometimes the only way that such hardening can be broken is there to be a disciplinary measure of the Lord if even then it breaks. Hasn't this often been ways that you've approached tragedies and sufferings and the consequences of sin? Because part of the reason that we approach them this way is we want to hold on to some joy and we want to hold on to some strength. False confidence makes us feel like we're strong. For a moment... You know, we're strong in the way that a a teenage young man puts big tires on his truck. It feels really strong. But those of us who've grown older look at it and think, false confidence. Uh, There looks like there's something strong, but when you actually punch it a little bit, you realize there's a lot of insecurity underneath. There's a weakness of heart. Or the escapism. Those who bury their heads in shopping mall sprees or in favorite substances or trips or in serial relationships in order to null or dull what's going on. Those who over the course of their lives have had their expectations hurt so much by God and others, they've just resigned that life is going to be hard and they walk through it stoically. Strong, no joy. Or joy, chasing it through escape, but no strength. Missing the two things that Habakkuk really shows us here in this passage. Where we sit in strong joy in the Lord. What what would that look like? A lot of times we're, we're strong in a human way and we lack joy. Or we seek joy in a human way and we lack strength. And neither one of them lasts because as tragedy really comes, it begins to reveal who we really are. In, I remember when this really came home to me for the first time. There's a woman in the church that I grew up in. She's probably six or seven years old. She'd been diagnosed with cancer. She's a beautiful woman, um, inside and out. Um, she revealed, too, a great love for the Lord and just a sincere care. For the people in our community. I remember when she was first diagnosed because it was a long journey. And it was the first person in my life who I knew really well that died. And her response when she was first diagnosed with cancer, I remember it because she gave testimony in the context of a church service that she was gonna beat cancer. She and the Lord were gonna gonna beat cancer. Which sounds like faith. But revealed itself to be false confidence. Uh, This kind of, we're going to do it right. Both in terms of prayer and in terms of medicines and in terms of diet. And we're going to get all of our P's and Q's straight. And if we do it just right, it'll all turn out right. False confidence. She got worse. As she got worse... Her doctor, along with a number of those within the church community, would come to her and say, this is getting worse. Have you begun to make preparations or thoughts about the future in terms, of, in terms of how this might unfold? I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to sit down with the funeral director and buy six feet of soil. Escapism. When it became patently clear that she was not going to recover from this cancer, a settled resignation kind of overtook her. There's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do about it. Praise be to God. As the Lord took her through those cycles, he winded up before he took her home, taking her to the heights. To where she once again was renewed in her relationship with the Lord and he restored unto her the joy of her salvation in him. But as you walk through tragedy and as you walk with others through tragedy, even in the context of this local congregation, have your eyes peeled for these because they're common to all of us. And what happens in holding them is instead of actually helping us ascend out of the darkness, it sends us deeper into the darkness. Because these are false assurances. At the end of the day, false confidence is going to be revealed for the foolishness that it is. And escapism is going to be shocked the moment everything is revealed. And resignation is going to be so hard-hearted that it's not going to be soft enough to experience the joy and the love of Christ. So what are we to do? Well, Habakkuk shows us. He ascends into the strong joy of the Lord. Look at what he says. Verses 18 and 19. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. It's the most astonishing statement We read, I believe, in this particular book of Habakkuk because it's so, as Patterson says in his commentary, it is so counter-expectant. He's kind of built a list of these six conditional statements for him to get at the end and think that he's giving up the ghost. He's just ready to die. We've actually seen that from Habakkuk, this protest and complaint and resignation. But now in the midst of a prayer in Habakkuk chapter 3, we're seeing a man... Strike upon his God. Despite the fact that economic, social, and spiritual meltdown are taking place and will take place around him, likely his family, his friends, his countrymen swept up into it, seeing his land raped, everything in homes pillaged, his own health, maybe even his life taken in the midst of it, he says, Yet I will rejoice. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. This counter expectation from Habakkuk is really a twist. Because you would expect something akin to Job's wife at a moment like this. That after experiencing such evil and suffering... Job's wife looks at him and says, you know, the only appropriate response to all that's going on with you as you scratch your boils with broken potted pots of clay is to curse God and die. To curse God and die. How is it that Job in that moment, how is it that Habakkuk in that moment draws an entirely different conclusion then Job's wife Then curse God and die. I would like to, I'd like to suggest to you that the reason there is a fundamental difference between her response and their response is that Job's wife, her relationship with God was not in God. But her relationship with God was in what God gave her. It was in the things that God had given to her. And it was not in God himself proper. Now why is that important? Here's why it's important. When the things that God has given us take precedent over God himself, when God takes away those things, we want nothing more to do with God. Because in reality, the things are an idol for Joe's wife, it's about figs. It's about fruit. It's about grains. It's about sheep. It's about cattle. It's about all of the stuff of the earth. It's about money and comfort and pleasure and family and ease. And when these things are taken, if they're life, then life is ostensibly over. Curse God and die. But for Job and Habakkuk, it's unthinkable to draw that conclusion. For it is actually in the suffering, in the midst of it, concurrently, as he sits in the watchtower and he waits for the coming storm of the Babylonians to utterly destroy the promised land. In the midst of the storm that is coming towards Israel, He experiences new heights of joy with the Lord. New strength in the Lord. How How does he do it? I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That little word in is critical. That little word in speaks to the true center or locus of Habakkuk's life. Though the earth was giving way, Though the mountains would fall into the heart of the sea, he will rejoice in the God of his salvation. Though cancer would ravage his body, though nothing would be served for supper, though the walls of his house would fall down, though his clothes would be torn to tatters, though his health would give way, though his life would die, his life was alive because he was in God. His life was alive because he was in God. His life was located... In God, he was in utter union with the Lord. And so there was no way that his life could be taken from him. He was utterly strong. Do you see the strength of that? What can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. So if your life is in the love of Christ Jesus, then your life is so secure. You're never, In fact, you're not more secure in heaven than you are right now if your life is in Christ. You're not more secure, maybe more satisfied, but not more secure, not more secure. He is is in the God of his salvation, and so he feels the strength, the strong joy of the Lord. Here's the realization of what our God so regularly has to do because he loves us, is he has to take things from us so we can find our life in him. We're holding on to life like this. And he very kindly sends the drought. He sends the famine. He sends the Babylonians. And you're like, you're taking my life. No, saving your life. I'm saving your life. Because as I take this out of your hand, you know what I'm putting? I'm putting my life into your hand. I'm gonna close it back up. And what you're gonna find is that when everything in life is gone, and you on a respirator in a hospital in Williamson County, and someone's about to unplug it, and and you're not going to be worried about the promotion, and you're not going to be worried about the grain or the figs, the question is, will your life be in the God of my salvation? And in the moment of the descending into death, here's what's remarkable you're ascending into the heavenly places with a strong joy. I love older believers in Christ who are nearing the finish line because they're ready to meet their life in its fullness. They're ready to meet their life. To live is Christ, to die is gain. To die his gain. Now, when you have that strong joy rooted at the center of your heart, you are radically free. You are radically free. Habakkuk, in the moment of what could be a pending death, is radically free of heart. He's so radically free that he doesn't fall in to what we typically fall into, which is counting the cost for following Jesus. He... He now is so, Jesus is so beautiful and his life is so full and rich in who God is that he is willing to spend and be spent fully for Jesus, fully for God, fully for Yahweh because he has found the one treasure worth living and worth dying for. Living and worth dying for. It's what David does in Psalm 16 when he says this. You are my Lord. I want to see if you can say this with, with a real heart, true heart. David says, I have no good apart from you. None. Now, Does David mean there's no good except God? No. He just means all the things that are good, if you have them and you don't have God in relationship to them, they're not good and they won't be good for you. If you love your car, your life is in your car. The best thing that God could do to you would be to blow up that car. It's the best thing he could do for you. You see, he's saving us most of the time when he's almost destroying us. We know this theme because this is at the very heart of what it means to walk the pattern of the gospel day in and day out. David understood that. That's why he can write Psalm 16, running in and out of caves, being chased by Saul and later his son Absalom. And walking through the suffering of life, he can say, listen to these words, The Lord is my chosen portion, food, and my cup. I have set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken, strong. Therefore, my heart is glad and my being rejoices, he says. You've made known to me the path of life. Notice, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand is pleasures forevermore. He's not talking about figs. He's not enamored with figs. He loves figs, I'm sure. He can have figs as long as he has them in relationship with the Lord and they're sweet. But if he doesn't have figs, he's just sweet because he's got the Lord. That's the mystery and the beauty of what Paul had to learn in contentment with the Lord. I've learned to have a lot. I've learned to have nothing. I've learned to be somewhere in between. But I've learned most of all that my life's not here in these things, that it's in Him. And so it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Now, when we walk through Psalm 16 like that with David, do you know what he's really doing? You know what David is doing when he says, "Lord is my choice and portion of my cup," and my whole being rejoices. You know what he's doing? He's skipping like a deer on the high places. That's what he's doing. The high places are scary. They're scary. They are. When we, when we're, you know, when we're walking, you know, high. When you, you see the deer on the high place? Are they scared? Just In fact, the language of hinds feet there on high places is, is the idea of a frolic. So the idea of the strong hindquarters of a deer that frolics along the edge. This is one who has found the strong joy of the Lord in the midst of a dangerous situation. In the midst of a calamity. In the midst of a tragedy. David experienced it. Habakkuk has experienced it as the Lord has dismantled his life through the course of this book. And the realization is we can experience it. And that type of joy is made available to you in the gospel because the Lord Jesus Christ has ascended the mountain. You you see, when he carried a cross at the side of a hill called Golgotha, 2,000 years ago, it was there where his life fell apart. It was there where he descended into the suffering and, in fact, the consequences of our sin in suffering. Not his own, but yours. He descended into the depths, even hell itself, so that we could ascend to the heights And walk on the high places with a strong joy in the Lord. And we know that was his heart because the writer of Hebrews says, Who for the joy, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated, he's ascended to the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. Jesus descended to take on the suffering of our sin. He ascended into the heavenly places so that we can recover from our descent into sin and ascend into the heavenly places with him by the Father. That's the glory of the gospel. And Habakkuk is showing us that in a beautiful way in the midst of entire world collapse. Friends, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, But if the Lord was to tarry, here are two things I'm quite sure of. And based upon historical evidence, I feel very confident saying this from a pulpit. You will die. And this nation will fall. That may hit your ears hard. Understandably so but I simply ask you to find another nation that hasn't. Well, there is one. It's called the kingdom of God. And don't mistake it for the kingdom of the world. Because if you do, it'll shake and it'll fall and you won't be able to walk on the heights in the strong joy of the Lord. Make today a day where you commit to invest in eternity and to root your life in the God of your salvation. For apart from that, there is no hope. But in that, there is hope evermore. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven... You know the measure of these truths that we need to hear, believe, embrace, and obey right now. You know what's coming for those of us in this room in ways that we could scarcely imagine. You know what's coming for us as a people and as a nation in ways that we, could, we couldn't even begin to fathom. For all we know, Lord, the Chaldeans are coming. It's time for us to ready ourselves in your presence It's time for us to quit fooling around with the things of the world and turning good things into curses by making them ultimate things. It's time, Lord, for us to find our joy and our strength and our life in you alone. Today, do that in our midst.